Section 21 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Berganza, Chapter 1, Part 3. The morning of the 25th dawned gloriously, and though the wind was little favorable for the voyage, they crossed the bar and succeeded in getting out to sea. The fleet which conveyed Catherine of Braganza to England consisted of fourteen men of war. The queen was in the admiral's ship, with such of her noble attendants and officers of state as could be accommodated in the same vessel. The rest were distributed in the vice-admiral's ship, the Gloucester, and the Royal James. In the Montague was the equipage of the queen. Three of the smaller vessels were freighted with one thousand boxes of sugar, being part of the goods in which Her Majesty's portion was transported to England. Among her English officers of state were Edward Montague, cousin to the Earl of Sandwich, who acted as her grand equerry, and the comptroller of her mother-in-law, Queen Henrietta Maria, who made all the disbursements on account of the king. Her almoners were Richard Russell, bishop-elect of Porta Laguerre, and Don Patricio, an Irish priest. Her Portuguese suite exceeded in number a hundred. Two ladies of the highest rank, and the most unbending gravity of deportment, Dona Maria de Portugal, Countess de Penalva, sister to the ambassador, Don Francisco de Mayo, and Dona Elvira de Vilpena, Countess de Ponteville, were appointed by the court of Lisbon to chaperone the royal bride. Her Majesty had also in her suite six noble young ladies, whom Count Hamilton profanely described as six frights, calling themselves maids of honor, and a duena, another monster, who took the title of governess to these extraordinary beauties. Besides these, pursues the same saucy author, were six chaplains, four bakers, a Jewish perfumer, and a certain officer, apparently without employment, calling himself Her Highness's barber. This person was, doubtless, the functionary whose office it was to disfigure Catherine's natural charms by packing her luxuriant tresses into the stiff, outlandish fashion, which excited so much wonder and mirth at her first arrival in England. The task of canonizing the side-locks of a lady's hair, in the mode worn by the royal bride of Charles II, would certainly have baffled the skill of an English hairdresser, and a French frisier would have suffered martyrdom rather than have done her such an injury. The passage to England was long and stormy, and the courtly passengers, especially the ladies, suffered greatly, both from seasickness and terror, but Catherine preserved her courage and composure during all the inconveniences and dangers of the voyage. The strong northwesters, having damaged some of the vessels, it became necessary to run into Mounts Bay, till the wind moderated, permitting them to pursue their course. It was in this bay, which is between the Lizard and the Land's End, that the first attentions of the people of England were shown to their new queen, by the display of fireworks along the coast, and the salutes of artillery with which she was welcomed. Off the Isle of Wight, she encountered the Duke of York's squadron of five frigates, with which he had put to sea, to meet his royal sister-in-law. As soon as he descried the fleet, he sent his secretary off in a boat, to ask permission to kiss her hand. Catherine, with ready tact, replied, that any delay would be painful to her. The Duke of York immediately put off in his launch, accompanied by the Duke of Ormond, master of the King's household, and the Earl of Chesterfield, who had been appointed Chamberlain, and the Earl of Carlingford, 
master of the ceremonies to the queen, the Earl of Suffolk, and other gentlemen. With this brilliant suite, all in full dress, his royal highness entered the admiral's ship. The Marquez de Sande, who had charge of the queen, with the other fidalgos, awaited his arrival on the deck. The queen, dressed in the English costume, the material white cloth trimmed with silver lace, was seated in the innermost cabinet of her cabin to receive him. This apartment was fitted up very magnificently as a miniature presence chamber, with a throne and canopy for the queen, who doubtless, amidst all the formal etiquette which surrounded her, awaited with a beating heart the appearance of the brother of the unknown consort to whom her hand was plighted. She advanced three paces beyond the canopy to meet him when he entered. The duke knelt with intent to kiss her hand, but she prevented him, according to our Portuguese authority, by raising him in her arms, with which we should infer that she vouchsafed a sisterly embrace, were it not that such a freedom was incompatible with the frigid reserve of her conventual breeding, and opposed to the customs of her country, and is contradicted by the remark of her chamberlain, the Earl of Chesterfield, who says, that although James, in consequence of his near connection with the sovereign, might have saluted the royal bride, he did not avail himself of his privilege, out of a delicate regard to his majesty's feelings, and that he might be the first man to offer that compliment to his queen. The queen, returning to her place, remained a few minutes in conversation with his royal highness, her almoner Russell, acting as interpreter. She then signed to the duke, that he should seat himself in a fautil, which had been placed for him at her right hand, but he refusing, she touched a tabaret, on which he seated himself at her left, without the canopy. The duke, while standing, had spoken in English. When seated, he continued the conversation in Spanish, which Catherine understood, it being her mother's native language. James conducted himself very amiably at this interview, making his new sister-in-law many assurances of his affection and offers of his service, to which she responded with such urbanity. Then the Duke of Ormond entered, to kiss the Queen's hand and deliver a letter from the King, the Lord Chamberlain, the Earl of Chesterfield, and other noblemen who had accompanied the Duke of York, were also presented to their new mistress. Her Majesty presented the Portuguese Fidalgos, who had attended her to England, to his royal highness, explaining who they were, and he treated them very graciously. On the duke retiring, the queen advanced three paces, which the duke endeavored to prevent, telling her she should recollect her rank. Catherine replied, with winning sweetness, that she wished to do that out of affection, which she was not obliged to do, an answer which greatly pleased the duke. Every day the queen received visits from her royal brother-in-law, with whom she seems to have established herself on very friendly terms, and being requested by him to dress herself in the Portuguese fashion, that he might see her in her national costume, she on one occasion received him so, on which he complimented her, saying, she looked very well in it. This little incident proves that Catherine was not quite so perverse in her conduct about her dress as Clarendon represents, who complains of her obstinate adherence to her Portuguese fashions and her determination to adopt no other. Which resolution, he says, 
her ladies had told her would be for the dignity of Portugal, and would quickly induce the English ladies to follow her majesty's example, and this imagination had made such an impression that the tailor who had been sent into Portugal to make her clothes could never be admitted to see her or receive any employment. Now it is possible that the employment of needlemen, although then customary in England, might be contrary to the strict notions of female propriety in Portugal, and that Catherine, from natural feelings of delicacy, might prefer employing a person of her own sex in the capacity of a dressmaker. But we find that, even before she landed, she had the good taste to attire herself in an English dress, to receive the brother of her affianced lord, and the gentleman by whom he was accompanied, and that she continued to wear it till he requested to see her in her national costume. On that day, pursues our Portuguese authority, the queen spoke to all the officers of the ship, and permitted them to kiss her hand. She presented a collar of gold to the captain, and gave money to the pilot and master, both for themselves, and to be distributed among the crew. This was the first time Catherine had emerged from the oriental state of seclusion in which she had kept herself ever since she left the Bay of Lisbon. Pepys affirms that Mr. Creed, one of Lord Sandwich's secretaries, told him how recluse the queen had ever been, and all the voyage never came on deck, nor put her head out of the cabin, but did love my lord's music, and would send for it down to the stateroom, and sit in her cabin within hearing of it. The Earl of Sandwich told Pepys that the queen was a very agreeable lady and painted well. She now began to conform herself to the English manners and admit persons to converse with her in her cabin. She sent the Conde de Ponteville, Don Francisco de Mayo, and Don Pedro Francisco de Correa to return the Duke of York's visit. The fleet entered Portsmouth May 13th, according to English computation. The Duke of York's ship followed the Royal Charles, and when the Queen disembarked, the Duke was ready to hand her into her richly decorated barge. She was attended by the Countess de Ponteville. The Countess of Penalva was too ill to leave the ship, where she was bled several times before she could be carried on shore. She was probably ill of the same fever, which attacked Catherine three days after she landed. The governor of Portsmouth, with the magistrates and the leading persons in the neighborhood, were on the beach to receive and welcome their new queen. Notwithstanding her attachment to her national costume and the jealousy of her attendants for the honor of Portugal, Catherine had the good sense to make her first appearance on English ground in an English dress, and when she entered her coach, she passed through the principal streets to gratify the eager desire of the people to see her. She was conducted to the king's house at Portsmouth, where she was received by the Countess of Suffolk, her principal lady of the bedchamber, and four other ladies of her household. As soon as this ceremonial was over, she wrote to King Charles, and dispatched her Lord Chamberlain, post to London, to announce her arrival, and deliver her letter to his majesty. On the morrow, she had mass performed by her principal almoner, Lord Aubigny, brother to the Duke of Richmond. The next day, Sir Richard Fanshawe brought her a message of welcome and a letter from her royal bridegroom, who was detained in London by imperative business. When Charles took leave of his parliament, assembled in the banqueting hall at Whitehall, he alluded to the expediency 
of their bestowing immediate attention on reforming the dirty state of the metropolis before the expected advent of their new queen, with a jocose familiarity unknown in modern royal speeches. The mention of my wife's arrival puts me in mind to desire you to put that compliment upon her, that her entrance into this town may be made with more decency than the ways will now suffer it to be, and to that purpose I pray you would quickly pass such laws as are before you, in order to the mending those ways, that she might not find Whitehall surrounded with water. On the news of the Queen's landing, all the bells in London rang, and the bonfires were kindled for joy of her arrival. The King was supping with Lady Castlemaine that night, but there was no fire at her door, though at almost every other door in the street, which, says Pepys, was much observed. About three weeks before, when the bells rang on a false report of the royal bride's arrival, there was a fierce quarrel between the Duchess of Richmond and the Lady Castlemaine, on which occasion the Duchess called the latter Jane Shore, and said, she hoped to see her come to the same end. Unfortunately, there was no symptom of the slightest abatement of this bad woman's credit at court, for the king, notwithstanding his matrimonial engagement, continued to dine and sup with her every day, to his own disgrace, and the regret of all his faithful friends. He wrote, however, gallant and affectionately worded letters every day to his betrothed consort, while she remained in maiden loneliness, waiting for his arrival at Portsmouth. Catherine was unfortunately attacked, the third day after her landing, with sore throat and fever, which confined her to her bed. This illness was attributed to cold taken on board ship. She was so soon out of danger that they did not think it necessary to apprise the king of her indisposition. The Earl of Sandwich, the paladin who escorted the Portuguese princess to England, has left a manuscript letter extant in the Bodleian, giving, with some liveliness, a sketch of the proceedings of his royal mistress at her first landing in her adopted country. It is addressed to Clarendon. My ever-honored lord, yesterday the duke's letter was sent in so great haste that I had scarce time to scribble one word to the king of our arrival. Give me leave to congratulate with your lordship the happy success of the voyage, that after some time and difficulties, the queen is safely landed and in very good health, which is wonderful, considering the length of her majesty's passage over the sea, and the stormy weather, and other disaccommodations to a person that scarce ever was out of the palace door before. Your lordship's letter I delivered unto her majesty, and made your excuse that your lordship did not attend her majesty's arrival at Hampton Court. Her majesty is abundantly possessed of your lordship's kindness from the beginning of this affair, and expresseth as much gratitude as I can possibly tell your lordship. She will write so much with her own hand, and give me the honor to convey it, which shall be done as soon as can be. I have told Her Majesty the advice your Lordship directed by Mr. Montague. She accepts thereof and will follow it. Not only in this, but all along will cast herself upon your Lordship's counsel, and the Queen Regent of Portugal, her mother, bade me assure your Lordship that it should be so, and that she had given her daughter to your charge. The Queen, as soon as she came to her lodgings, received my Lady Suffolk and the other ladies very kindly, and appointed them this morning to come and put her in that habit they thought would be most pleasing to the king, and I doubt not, but when they shall have done their parts, she will appear with much more advantage, and very well to the king's contentment. 
she is a prince of extraordinary goodness of disposition very discreet and pious and there are the most hopes that ever was of her making the king and us all happy here then in confirmation of the narrative of the portuguese chronicler of the marriage of catherine of berganza we have the testimony of an eye-witness of no less importance than the admiral ambassador who had the honor of bringing her to england as to the gracious reception given by her to the countess of suffolk and the other ladies who had been sent to wait upon her at her landing yet clarendon to whom this simple statement of the fact was written by sandwich in a confidential report for his private information of the deportment of the new queen has left the following strange misrepresentation of her conduct on this occasion nor when she came to portsmouth and found there several ladies of prime quality to attend her in the places to which they were assigned by the king did she receive any of them till the king himself came nor then with any grace or the liberty that belonged to their places and offices what clarendon's motives could have been for such a direct violation of the truth is difficult to conjecture the earl of sandwich was no silken courtier but a plain honest seaman he had been a roundhead and was still a puritan and can scarcely be suspected of too much partiality for a catholic queen nothing however can be more satisfactory than his report of her conduct and character he concludes his letter with the following brief particulars of the dowry her portion business stands as i think i formerly gave your lordship an account some two hundred thousand crowns we have spent with the fleet at lisbon there is four hundred thousand in sugar plate and jewels on board the fleet and eight hundred thousand more in bills of exchange to be paid two months after the wedlock dated may twentieth old style the queen seemed to imagine that the jewels were intended for her personal decoration for she made a demand of them for that purpose which occasioned some perplexity to the earl of sandwich and the duke of york before the matter could be satisfactorily arranged it was not till five days after catherine's arrival at portsmouth that her affianced lord prepared to seek her charles left london on the nineteenth of may having supped on the preceding evening at the house of his imperious mistress the countess of castlemaine he travelled the first day in the duke of northumberland's coach accompanied by prince rupert and escorted by a troop of his lifeguards he reached kingston in an hour and thence proceeded in the earl of chesterfield's coach with the escort of the duke of york's guards to guilford where he slept he arrived at portsmouth the next day about three o'clock in the afternoon and went directly to visit his bride the marquez de sandy and the portuguese waited his approach in the court he received them all most graciously telling the marquez de sandy how much pleasure he felt on seeing him in england on this auspicious occasion they then entered the house but scarcely had they ascended the stairs when prince rupert raised a dispute for precedency with the ambassador and even had the ill manners to push before him and take the place of honor next the person of the king the ambassador who well knew the prerogative of his office stopped him and appealed to his majesty who told him he was in the right and commanded his petulant kinsman to give place to him after this reprimand from his royal cousin prince rupert treated the other portuguese nobles with great politeness while the king was robing preparatory to entering the presence of the queen catherine was still confined to her bed which her physicians would not permit her to leave and the king who insisted on seeing her was introduced into her chamber 
the Earl of Sandwich had the honour of attending his royal master there, and wrote to Clarendon that the meeting between their majesties was with due expressions of affection, the queen declaring her perfect resignation to the king's pleasure. I observed, continues he, as much as this short time permits, and I do believe this first interview hath been with much contentment on both sides, and that we are like to be very happy in this conjunction. Charles addressed his bride in Spanish, and with the kindest expressions, signified the pleasure he felt at seeing her, which would, he said, have been diminished if her physicians had not assured him that there was no cause of apprehension from her indisposition. Catherine's answers were given with so much prudence and discretion that when the king returned to his apartments, he expressed his satisfaction at the fortunate choice he had made of a queen. Colonel Legg, afterwards Earl of Dartmouth, in his notes to Burnett's history of his own times, pretends that when Charles foresaw his bride, he said, that he thought they had brought him a bat instead of a woman. Fortunately, we have a very different account of the impression Catherine of Braganza made on the royal bridegroom in an autograph letter written by himself to his Lord Chamberlain on the morning of the 21st of May, the day appointed for the solemnization of their nuptials, and it is certain that if he had been at all dissatisfied with her appearance, the non-performance of the contract regarding her marriage portion would have afforded him an excellent excuse for returning her, and all her boxes of sugar and spices, jewels and bills of exchange, to the queen her mother, as he was not bound to her by any previous ceremony of marriage by proxy, but if he were not pleased with her, there is no trusting a man's own words. Her face, says he, is not so exact as to be called a beauty, though her eyes are excellent good, and nothing in her face that in the least degree can disgust one. On the contrary, she hath as much agreeableness in her looks as I ever saw. And if I have any skill in physiognomy, which I think I have, she must be as good a woman as ever was born. Her conversation, as much as I can perceive, is very good, for she has wit enough and a most agreeable voice. You will wonder to see how well we are acquainted already. In a word, I think myself very happy, for I am confident our two humors will agree very well together. I have not time to say any more. My Lord Lieutenant will tell you the rest. That morning, Catherine found herself so much amended that all things being ready, it was determined that the nuptials should take place that day. Catherine was earnestly entreated to dispense with the Catholic ceremonial, but as she was inflexible on that point, it was performed with great secrecy, in her own bedroom, by the Lord Albigny, Queen Henrietta's almoner, no one being present but the Portuguese ambassador, three Portuguese nobles, and two Portuguese ladies. It has been asserted that the Duke of York was one of the witnesses, but he does not mention this in his own journal. He says, the Lord Chancellor did not know of the private marriage. The outward ceremonial, as the Duke terms, the solemnization of the nuptial rite in the form prescribed by the Church of England, did not take place till after dinner. When, says our Portuguese authority, the king taking the queen by the hand, led her into the grand hall or presence chamber, where was a throne with two seats under a canopy. According to the description of Sir Richard Fanshawe, who had the honor of acting as groomsman to the king at the public ceremonial of his marriage, 
a rail was stretched across the upper end of the room within which only entered the king the queen the bishop of london and the marquez de sandy the portuguese ambassador with sir richard fanshawe who had carried the king's troth to portugal but the lower end of the presence chamber was crowded with nobility and the aristocracy of the neighborhood the king and queen having seated themselves on the double throne the secretary sir john nicholas before the assembled nobles and people read the marriage contract which the king had given to the ambassador and the portuguese secretary francisco sa de menezes that which the ambassador had given the king then the king took the queen by the hand and plighted his troth to her according to the form prescribed in the liturgy of the church of england the queen merely signified her consent but did not repeat the responses probably because she could not frame her unpractised lips to pronounce so many hard words in english and not as generally asserted out of contempt to a protestant bishop and a protestant rite since she had positively refused to consider her contract with the king as a marriage till the bishop had pronounced them man and wife some have doubted from the ambiguity of the duke of york's expressions whether the outward ceremony amounted to anything more than this declaration but the earl of sandwich who was present says then the bishop of london stood forth and made the declaration of matrimony in the common prayer in the name of the father son and holy ghost when the bishop in conclusion pronounced that they were man and wife the people joyfully responded long may they live the king rose and taking the queen by the hand led her into his apartments when all the ladies and principal persons of the court entered to kiss her hand the royal bride was attired in an english dress rose colour trimmed with knots of blue ribbon these the countess of suffolk her first lady of the bedchamber at the conclusion of the ceremony detached from her majesty's dress and distributed as wedding favors among the company giving the first to the duke of york and the others as far as they would go to the officers of state ladies and persons of quality not leaving the queen one sir richard fanshawe says all the ribbons her majesty wore on her wedding dress were cut to pieces and every one present had a fragment we may imagine the scramble and competition that took place on this occasion sir richard fanshawe who performed the important office of bridesman to the majesty of england received for his fees a whole-length picture of king charles in his garter robes a crimson velvet cloth of state fringed and laced with gold with a chair a footstool and cushions and two other stools to match with a persian carpet to lay under them these were evidently used by the royal bride and bridegroom at the altar he had a suit of beautiful tapestry with which the presence room was hung the two velvet cloths of the altar fringed with the surplices altar covers and napkins of fine white linen a bible of ogilby's print two common prayer books folio and quattro with eight hundred ounces of gilt plate and four thousand ounces of white silver plate a velvet bed was his right by custom but this he did not have he was dispatched to lisbon to announce the safe arrival of queen catherine and her marriage to her mother the queen regent of portugal the marriage of charles the second and catherine of braganza is duly registered in the parish church of st thomas a becket portsmouth in these words our most gracious sovereign lord charles the second by the grace of god king of great britain etc and the most illustrious princess dona catherina 
Infanta of Portugal, daughter to the deceased Don Juan, King of Portugal, and sister to the present Don Alfonso, King of Portugal, were married at Portsmouth upon Thursday, the 21st of May, 1662, being the 14th year of His Majesty's reign, by the Right Reverend Father in God, Gilbert, Lord Bishop of London, Dean of His Majesty's Chapel Royal, in the presence of several of the nobility of His Majesty's dominions and Portugal. This document is written on vellum in letters of gold. But to return to the royal pair. As the queen was not quite recovered from her late attack of illness, she, by the advice of her physicians, retired to take a little repose on her bed. Lady Suffolk, who had from the first day entered upon her duties with the other English ladies, disrobed her majesty, assisted by the countesses of Penalva and Ponteville. The king took his supper with the queen on her bed, showing in every way how much he was pleased with her. The feelings, however, with which the royal bridegroom regarded his newly wedded consort will be best described by himself in the following cheerful letter, which he wrote to Clarendon four days after his marriage. Portsmouth, 25th of May. My brother will tell you all that passes here, which I hope will be to your satisfaction. I am sure tis so much to mine, that I cannot easily tell you how happy I think myself, and I must be the worst man living, which I hope I am not, if I be not a good husband. I am confident never two humors were better fitted together than ours are. We cannot stir from hence till Tuesday, by reason that there are not carts to be had tomorrow, to transport all of our guard infantas, without which there is no stirring, so you were not to expect me till Thursday night at Hampton Court. Superscribed for the Chancellor. Some authors have gravely inquired who this numerous train of guard infantas were, on whose carting the movements of the Majesty of England and his bride depended, under the idea that they were a troop of grim duenas, deputed by the Queen Mother of Portugal for the care of her daughter's morals and manners. They were, however, nothing more than the cumbrous fardingales pertaining to the wardrobe of Catherine and the Portuguese ladies by whom she was attended. These stately gabardines had excited much wonder in the British court, where they and their wearers were equally the subjects of derision. The Queen's Chamberlain, Lord Chesterfield, makes a whimsical complaint of the difficulty there was in pleasing the Portingale ladies, as he calls them, for they were so over-delicate about their lodgings that they refused to sleep in any beds that had ever been occupied by men. Of their royal mistress, however, he gives the following agreeable description. You may credit her being a very extraordinary woman, that is extremely devout, extremely discreet, very fond of her husband, and the owner of a good understanding. As to her person, she is exactly shaped and has lovely hands, excellent eyes, a good countenance, a pleasing voice, fine hair, and in a word, is what an understanding man would wish a wife. Yet I fear, pursues he, all this will hardly make things run in the right channel, but if it should, I suppose our court will require a new modeling, and then the profession of an honest man's friendship will signify more than it does now. A pretty token of respect was presented to the new queen from the town of Southampton in the form of a silver salt cellar of exquisite workmanship, of which the walls were crystal and the dish supported by four eagles and four greyhounds. While at Portsmouth, Catherine received a kind letter of affectionate congratulation on her marriage from the queen mother, Henrietta Maria, 
who was then at Paris. The Earl of St. Albans was the bearer of this letter, to which Queen Catherine replied in the same terms of affection and respect. The Portuguese ambassador, and all who had followed the Queen, were entertained by the Lord Chamberlain at the King's expense, during the sojourn of the court at Portsmouth. End of section 21